Welcome to British History, Royals, Rebels, and Romantics, Season 2. I am thrilled you're with us once again. This season, we're continuing to explore history through the lives of the Royals, the Rebels, and the Romantics. That makes history so fascinating. It's really true that history shows us what's possible. This month, It's all Elizabeth I, all the time. We're looking at the Virgin Queen, Gloriana herself, and getting some great input and insight from Tracy Borman and Kate McCaffrey. Also this month, we're launching our patron program, which gives you a chance to be more involved with the podcast and gives me a chance to offer all kinds of gratitude and thank yous for all you do to support us. So look for more details to come. A big shout out to everyone who has subscribed, who has left a rating and a comment. I appreciate it so much and ask the rest of you to do so if you can. Now, please follow me at Shake Up History on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, for the latest information about those royals, rebels, and romantics. And now, it's time to shake up history together. We're back! All the royals, rebels, and romantics are back for season two. I am so glad you are back as well. We have lots of fun ahead for this season. Here's a little preview of what's coming up in the next few months. September will be all about Elizabeth I. We're celebrating the Virgin Queen and her birthday all month long. I am thrilled to be joined by one of my favorite historians and authors, Tracy Borman, for a discussion about Elizabeth and her life and her impact on history. I'm also delighted to be joined by up-and-coming historian Kate McCaffrey, who recently made history of her own by discovering new inscriptions in the Anne Boleyn Book of Hours at Hever Castle. Kate will be telling us about Anne's book and how it shows a potential connection between Anne and Elizabeth. More about Elizabeth and her legacy in a few minutes. Then for us, it's on to October. And by the pricking of my thumbs, something wicked this way comes. Yes, it's time for a look at witches and magic in history. The supernatural has fascinated us throughout history, and beliefs about magic, alchemy, and otherly creatures help shape much of our own history. We'll be welcoming some great guests to help us face our fears. In November, we'll remember, remember various rebels and rebellions throughout history. Where there is power, there is resistance, and that's very true of British history. So we'll take a look at various individuals and groups who have stood up, stepped out, and taken down official sources of power. Famous and infamous, these rebels changed history, and we'll be looking at how. And finally, we'll wrap up 2021 with a month of historic holiday happenings. We'll see moments from medieval castles to Tudor tournaments and from Victorian visions of sugar plums to Windsor family drama. We'll look at some of the most memorable holiday moments. 
then, believe it or not, will ring in 2022. So much history ahead, including all of your favorite royals, rebels, and romantics, and a few you might not know about yet. Also new for season two is our patron program. That's right. I'm so excited that you can be a supporter of the podcast. In fact, you can choose to be a royal, a rebel, or a romantic. Details are still evolving, but you can count on huge, huge, huge appreciation from me for any way you want to be involved. We'll have lots of really great digital downloads, exclusive content, and other fun goodies. Thanks to my partner in crime, Lindsay Lindstrom, who's helping with this. So keep an eye out for our backstage pass. But enough of the future. Let's talk about now. And right now, we're all Elizabeth I all the time. The final tutor, the Virgin Queen, Gloriana herself is our focus this month. After all, her birthday is the 7th of September, and celebrating her can't be contained in just one day. So I've gathered up five frequent questions I get about Elizabeth I. They serve as a nice overview of the beginning of her life and reign and a great way to help us get started. The first question has two parts. Why was Elizabeth taken out of the line of succession and why was she put back in? We have to remember that succession acts weren't really a thing before Henry VIII and his marital merry-go-round. For centuries, it was simply assumed that, according to the tradition of primogenitor, the eldest son of the king would simply become the next king. It hadn't always been smooth. Sometimes, as was the case when Henry I died without a legitimate son, the succession was disputed. In that situation, Henry's daughter Matilda battled cousin Stephen for the throne, which Stephen maintained and eventually passed to Matilda's son. Sometimes the crown passed to the king's brother or grandson if there was no son to inherit. And of course, there was that famous time when the young king and his brother were left in the Tower of London and Uncle Richard assumed the throne. But we are not going there right now. Not until the days of Henry VIII did the king find a need to pass a series of succession acts to keep up with his series of wives. When Henry ended a marriage, he didn't actually divorce his wife. He annulled the marriage and pretended it never happened. Thus, the act of succession passed in March 1534 and supported by the act respecting the oath to the succession, something all subjects were required to take, specified that Henry had not been married to his first wife, Catherine of Aragon, and therefore, their daughter Mary was not legitimate and not in the line of succession. That act further identified Princess Elizabeth, daughter of Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn, to be Henry's heir until some sons came along. Now, had Anne Boleyn managed to give the king a son, that boy would have preceded Elizabeth in the succession, but she would not have been removed. She just would have been pushed down by any legitimate sons. Had Anne Boleyn just died and Henry married again, Elizabeth wouldn't have had to be removed from the succession. But that's not how Henry operated. He didn't wait for Anne Boleyn to die. He annulled that marriage too. So, in 1536, the Act Concerning the Succession of the Crown, commonly known as the Second Succession Act, declared Elizabeth was illegitimate because it turned out 
Henry had not been married to Anne Boleyn either. So, in fact, after the Second Succession Act, there was not a legitimate heir to the throne. So this act had to go on to say that Henry could name his successor if he died without a child. It was quite a message for Mary and Elizabeth. No heir at all was preferable to either of them being the heir. Fortunately for Henry, Edward came along in 1537, but no more sons followed, meaning that as Henry entered the final years of his reign, he might have realized that those two daughters were a good security blanket in support of his one male heir. So, the Act of Succession 1543 was passed. It's sometimes referred to as the Succession Act of 1544 because it went into effect that year. Both Elizabeth and Mary were returned to the line of succession. However, they were not made legitimate. This was a decision that would haunt both women. Officially and legally illegitimate, they were barred from inheriting titles. Resistance against Mary and Elizabeth becoming regnant queens was strengthened by the argument they were illegitimate anyway. That moves us right to our second question. Why did Edward VI disinherit Elizabeth as well as Mary? As Edward VI neared the end of his young life, he realized two things. There would not be time for him to marry and have a child and heir. And he did not want to leave the throne to the person identified as next in line, his half-sister Mary. Edward had worked very hard to ensure the country was on a firm Protestant path and Mary would undo all that work. She was as dedicated to her faith as he was to his. Whatever it took, he had to leave the throne to someone else. So why not Elizabeth? Elizabeth was also his half-sister, and she was Protestant. They had shared tutors and education, and they got on well. In fact, their relationship was strong enough to convince Edward Seymour to bring the new king Edward VI, to be with his sister Elizabeth when they heard the news of their father's death. So why couldn't Edward simply leave the throne to Elizabeth? At that time, Edward couldn't legally disinherit Mary just because he didn't like her religion. He didn't have time to call Parliament and get a new act of succession passed. It seemed the cleanest way to remove Mary from the succession was to focus on her illegitimate status. Technically, she couldn't inherit the throne because she was illegitimate. That applied to Elizabeth, too. Edward was also initially hoping to find a male heir, as he found the thought of a woman succeeding him as awful as Henry VIII had. So in the initial devise for the succession, Edward left the throne to the male heirs of Francis Brandon and her daughters. When Edward's health deteriorated further and it was clear he needed an heir immediately, he revised the device and left the throne to Lady Jane Grey and her male heirs. So Mary and Elizabeth were viewed together in that process, not as Catholic and Protestant successor, but as two illegitimate women who were not acceptable. Which brings us to our next question. Okay, so why didn't Mary I disinherit her? There was a moment after Mary's supporters had rallied and she had successfully claimed the throne following Edward's death and the time of Lady Jane Grey, 
when Elizabeth rode into London as part of her sister's triumphant train. Elizabeth was recognized as Queen Mary's sister and heir. This was true of Mary's coronation as well. Elizabeth held prominent status, and the sisters presented a united front. That united front didn't last. It wasn't just that Mary was Catholic and Elizabeth was Protestant. Mary had every reason to hate Elizabeth. Elizabeth's very existence was the reason Mary and her beloved mother, Catherine of Aragon, had been subjected to all the humiliation of that public annulment and disinheritance. When Anne Boleyn became pregnant, it tipped Henry into action. He decided to separate himself from the Pope and the church he had supported his entire life. Certain that Anne's child would be a boy, Henry had his first marriage publicly set aside. Elizabeth was the reason for all of that, at least in Mary's mind. And Elizabeth was a constant reminder of her mother, Anne Boleyn, the woman Mary blamed for every ill that had befallen her in the country. So it's not surprising that Elizabeth's presence and her popularity would drive Mary nuts. One of Mary's first acts as queen was to have Parliament officially overturn the act that had annulled her parents' marriage. She reinstated the marriage of Henry VIII and Catherine of Aragon, which made her, Mary, the late king's legitimate daughter and heir. And the added benefit of that was that it disinherited Elizabeth for the third time. After all, if Henry and Catherine were truly and lawfully married, Henry was not married to Anne Boleyn when Elizabeth was born. So Elizabeth was illegitimate. Again. Mary's plan, of course, was to make the whole notion of Elizabeth being the heir a moot point by marrying and having children of her own. Her goal when marrying Philip of Spain was to produce an heir to unite both kingdoms. That had always been her goal, patterned after the life of her grandmother, Isabella of Castile. Unite two kingdoms for the greater glory of God. She would return England to Catholicism and bring Philip and England into a grand holy alliance. Elizabeth and her claim to the throne would just fade away. But it didn't work that way. Despite Mary's desperation for an heir, which led to a couple of phantom pregnancies, she was unable to have a child. Mary had imprisoned Elizabeth in the tower, she had banished Elizabeth from court, and she had publicly said she didn't believe Elizabeth was really Henry VIII's daughter. But there was Elizabeth, popular with the people and waiting in the wings. When Edward had tried to prevent Mary from taking the throne, Mary had based her claim in the Succession Act's passed by her father and never overturned by law. Those succession acts, that final third succession act, was still in effect. Mary may have wanted to leave the throne to someone else, to anyone else, but there was not a legal way to do so. It's recorded that at her death, when she made the statement about the succession, she could not bring herself to say Elizabeth's name, just that the throne would pass to the person legally considered the heir. And even if Mary wouldn't say the name, everyone knew who that person was, Elizabeth. All right, our next question is about another Mary, Mary Queen of Scots. Why did Mary Queen of Scots claim to be Queen of England? Mary I of England was not the only person who didn't want to see Elizabeth on the throne. 
In fact, that sentiment was shared by much, if not most, of Catholic Europe. The marriage between Mary I and Philip of Spain had been celebrated by Catholics all over Europe as the means of bringing England back into the fold and establishing a lasting alliance among Catholic powers. Mary didn't live long enough to complete that process. What was needed was a Catholic ruler to carry on the work. Although a male was, of course, preferred, Catholics discovered the the same thing that Edward VI had when he was searching for an heir. There just weren't men in the Tudor line of succession. Catholics disregarded Henry VIII's decision, spelled out in his will, to ignore the line descending from his elder sister, Margaret. She had become Queen of Scotland, and some, but not all, of her descendants had been born in Scotland. Having someone from Scotland on the English throne was not acceptable to Henry, so he had set aside Margaret's entire line and moved on to his younger sister Mary's heirs. Edward agreed, and that's why he chose Lady Jane Grey. But it was Margaret Tudor who had a grandchild that fit all the requirements of Catholics, except, of course, that she was a girl. She had an impeccable line, she was born of royals, she was Queen of Scotland, and she was soon to be Queen of France. And best of all, she was Catholic. There she is, Mary Queen of Scots. In 1558, when Mary I died and Elizabeth inherited the throne of England, Mary Queen of Scots was just shy of her 16th birthday. She was betrothed to Dauphin of France and set to become queen. She had spent years at the French court and was devoted to it. It's likely her father-in-law, Henri II of France, was the driving force behind Mary's claiming the English throne. As the eldest child of James V, who was the son of Margaret Tudor and James IV, Mary had a strong claim to the English throne. For Catholics who rejected the marriage of Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn, and thus rejected Elizabeth's claim, Mary, Queen of Scots, was heir to Mary Tudor. It was a serious threat to Elizabeth. It's reported that as Mary walked through the corridors of the French palaces, she had her herald cry out, Make way for the Queen of England! She began adding the royal arms of England to her coat of arms. When Henri II died suddenly in 1559, Mary leaned into her claim of being Queen of England. The official royal arms of Francois and Mary included the arms of England. The coins and medals struck for the French king and queen's coronation identified them as king and queen of France, England, Scotland, and Ireland. They never made any attempt to enforce that claim, but it was firmly in place years later when Mary came to England. From 1568 onwards, Mary would live in England, and her claim to the English throne would become increasingly dangerous to Elizabeth and Protestantism. And our final question, how did the people feel about Elizabeth becoming queen? Interestingly, Elizabeth's accession to the throne was the first that was announced immediately upon the death of her predecessor in Tudor times. The deaths of Henry VII, Henry VIII, and Edward VI were all kept secret for a few days so counselors could rush around and set things up. Mary died the 17th of November, and that same day, Elizabeth was formally proclaimed queen outside the Palace of Westminster and at various other locations around London. People celebrated, but their celebrations were tempered with concerns. 
England was not seen as a strong nation when Elizabeth took the throne. There were problems with Scotland. There were problems with France. Their relationship with Spain was unknown without Mary. Religious chaos and turmoil gripped all of England. The loss of Calais still rankled. The country was in debt. And unlike Mary, whose family had strong ties and support in Spain, Elizabeth had no foreign support. And worst of all, it was another woman. But Elizabeth was so firm in her conviction that Providence had brought her to the throne, she projected this confidence to her subjects. And largely, although she had largely been out of sight at Hatfield during the final months of Mary's reign, she had kept in contact with supporters and was well informed of the challenges and opportunities ahead. She appointed William Cecil her principal secretary, setting in place a minister who would provide invaluable support and stability over the many years of her reign. In late November, Elizabeth rode into London and delighted the crowds that gathered to greet her there. In public situations such as this, Elizabeth's genius at connecting with people came into full view and full effect. She looked at her people. She listened to them. She paused to accept an offering of flowers and expressed gratitude warmly. Foreign ministers, such as Count Feria of Spain, criticized and mocked her willingness to speak to commoners. But Elizabeth knew what she was doing. She was making time for her people, and they loved her for it. The Queen's coronation processions in early January gave her another chance to interact with her people. She moved slowly through the streets, listening attentively to speeches and pageants offered to celebrate her coming to the throne. When she was given a Bible, she was reported to have kissed it and held it close to her and promised to read it attentively. She spoke with the livery companies. She stopped to thank well-wishers. She paused the procession when some of her poorer subjects ran up with small bunches of flowers or herbs, and she received these gifts with the same appreciation as she had the more expensive offerings. The coronation itself was a success in the eyes of the people. Although there were tensions in the still-Catholic ceremony for the not-Catholic queen, the celebrations were genuine and long-lasting. Bishop Oglethorpe proclaimed Elizabeth the queen and presented her to the people, asking if they would have her. And their response was enthusiastically positive. After the coronation, there was a grand celebratory banquet in Westminster Hall, as was traditional, and the festivities continued. After her coronation, Elizabeth remembered the power of her people's goodwill throughout her reign. She continued to go on progresses, to be seen by her people, to meet with them and give them other opportunities to feel like she was part of them and they were part of her. Her language in great speeches often reinforced and reflected her commitment to her people. In fact, it's said that after Elizabeth's death, Sir Walter Raleigh told King James I that the reason for Elizabeth's popularity was her ability to connect with the people. Knowing himself to be quite unpopular with the English people, James was probably not too impressed with Raleigh's comment. In fact, remarks such of these didn't please the king at all, who had Raleigh executed for treason in 1618. But the lasting success of Elizabeth's reign depended on the support of her people. 
She knew it. And she cultivated the goodwill of those people from the very earliest days of her reign right till the end. So that's our preview of Elizabeth I and how her reign gets going. A few common questions to set the stage for what's to come the rest of the month. We'll see Tracy Borman, Kate McCaffrey, and more in the weeks ahead. I can't wait to share with you all of the royals, rebels, and romantics of British history. So let's keep shaking up history together. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this time with the royals, rebels, and romantics of British history, especially Queen Elizabeth I. I really love hearing from you, so let me know what you think, give the podcast a rating, and please reach out on social media at Shake Up History on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And now, stay safe, have a good week, and let's keep shaking up history together. <music>